So, Acts, we've done, on Sunday at least, through chapter four. Here's what we've seen. Like, it's been really good. Went from 120 people, chapter two to 3,000 people. Then a miracle happens, somebody gets healed. It blossoms up to 10,000 plus people. And this group of people, really awesome. Super generous. They're selling homes and giving all the money from their home to the church. Who does that? Who in the world would do that? They're unified. It says this, that they met day by day. Every day they're getting together with people from the church. Now, apart from your family, is there anyone that you would want to be around every single day? Maybe you don't even want to be around your family every day. I don't know. <laughs> right? This is an amazing thing. They're honest. They're kind. They're loving. They're pure. It's incredible. Just every chapter that we've read, it's gotten better and better. Now chapter five. It begins with, but. But. Whenever there's a but, you know it's not gonna be pretty. So I have conversations sometimes with people and they're like, hey, Matt, like, we love chapters one through four. We love this and love this about the church. But I'm like, oh, here comes the wood. I'm gonna get spanked. And so what's happening right here? But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. That's been happening. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interview, interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. There's no Instagram, no Facebook posts. You know, she was out in the cold. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, <laughs> they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow. Great text for a Sunday morning. 
So if chapters one through four is the honeymoon period of Acts, what's chapter five? The first fight. And what's the first fight over? Money. I've done this counseling session right here. I've had this exact one. So crazy. So you read this and immediately some questions should be coming to your mind like what in the world? Why? How? Ah! I have a whole list of questions. I'm going to try to tackle two. Hopefully, well. The two questions I'm going to try to tackle are this. Number one, how'd this happen? You have this church that's flourishing and beautiful and pure and generous and awesome. It's a massive sin bump. And you and I, our lives can be awesome and pure and going along well. And then all all of a sudden we hit a massive sin bump. So it's good to know how's that happen. Number two, why is God so harsh? Like why does God kill two people in Acts chapter five? So those are my questions. First, how'd this happen? We know because of the way the stories are framed Barnabas last Sunday, hyper generous. Then this story tells us the other side of generosity is greed. And that's really the gasoline. But there's a spark that you have to get at because it is the MO of our enemy. So notice something. Notice verse three says this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who's the cause of the problem in verse three? You guys did it too. Like it's a fear to say the name Satan. Like if we say Satan, he might actually appear. Don't say his name. Just say that guy, the, the other guy. Yeah, right? It's so funny. He won't appear. It's Satan, right? Why has Satan filled your heart? He's the one. So it's Satan, verse three. But then look at verse four. Part C. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Who's to blame in verse four? Ananias, right? So who causes the sin? Uh, Ananias or Satan? Yeah, right? Like any marriage issue, it's complicated. This one's complicated. But this is how our enemy works. What we're seeing here, and you can go all the way back to Genesis 3, is there is an MO that Satan uses. And this is what he does. Satan captivates our heart, and then we consent. And when that marriage is made, it produces a sin baby that will keep you up at night. That's the MO right here. Okay? And it's replayed over and over and over in the Bible. So that's what we're seeing right here. And I think as believers, you've already seen it happen to you. So I'll try to give you some examples. Have you ever been driving in your car? Beautiful day. Like today, windows are rolled down. Hair is streaming in the wind. You can smell the fresh flowers. Best song in the world is on the radio. 
Your heart is singing for joy. You're just as happy as a clam. I don't know how happy a clam is, but you're as happy as a clam. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of that, from out of nowhere comes this thought. It's a memory or a reminder of somebody you have a beef with. And all of a sudden, everything changes. No longer is it happy, joy, awesome day. Now it's like, oh, I don't like that guy. Man, ooh. And you start in your mind replaying how you're gonna get him. He's gonna say this, then I'll say that, and he's gonna do this. Yeah. Has it ever happened to anybody? What was that? Verse three. It's verse three. Have you ever been sitting in church, spacing off from the sermon? And all of a sudden you have this thought. You're like, ah, I can't believe I just thought that. Oh my goodness, nobody noticed, do they? Oh man, I gotta get back to, read the Bible, read the Bible. Psalm 23, Psalm 23, right? You're like, where did that come from? Verse 23, right? That's Satan's MO. He lobs stuff at us until something captivates us. And then he keeps lobbing it at us. And when we consent to it, sin's born. That's what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. That's what happens to the believers all the time. Okay? So I've been having this email conversation with this pastor who's been following the acts. And he's like, he asked this question, like, okay, we have that issue. How as believers do we keep from getting into chapter five? How do we do that? Well, here's how. Here's what I do in counseling with people all the time. I take them to this text almost always because for some reason it's not well known, but it's like the key text when it talks about what's happened to you and me when we believe. It's Ezekiel 36. And it could be because Ezekiel is hard to say. So maybe people don't turn there because of that. So Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says this, and all these things can be found in the New Testament. Ezekiel puts it together in just the most beautiful way. So when you believe, here's what happens to you. Listen to this. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Not you could be clean or you might be clean or you will in the future be clean. You are clean and I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And here's something that often people miss. Entire theologies miss this. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The old you that was corrupt and broken and distraught and headed in the wrong direction, God says, I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna move it out of you. I'm gonna throw it away. I'm gonna give you a brand new heart. I'm gonna give you my spirit. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what this means. Number one, when you believe you're cleansed, my favorite example of this is maybe four or five years ago, we rented out the YMCA on New Year's Eve. And we had a midnight baptism that night. And my nephew, Nehemiah, he's eight or nine years old at that time, came down and he was baptized. And it was such a joy to baptize him at midnight. And then he left me and he walked up into the locker room. And my brother-in-law, Clyde, 
followed him in to be like, hey, great job, buddy. And he gets in there. And if you've been in the YMCA locker room, half of you have not. So um, the men's locker room has this big, like slab of concrete in there that you can sit on and change your clothes. So Nehemiah is up on that slab of concrete and he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's kind of doing this and he's looking, trying to get a glance of himself and he's there just in his shorts. And Clyde goes in and is like, hey, Nehemiah, bro, what's happening, man? What are you doing? He goes, I'm trying to look at myself. I'm trying to look at myself because I feel so clean. I need to see myself. That's baptism. And often when you baptize somebody, you can see it on their face. They come out of those waters and it's like they're glowing. Like, whoa, you're clean. That's number one. When you have believed in Jesus, you are cleansed. Number two, new heart. Old heart gone, new heart. Now, when you think about heart in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word lieb, it does not mean the pumper that moves 2,000 gallons a day. The heart in the Old Testament is the center of your values. It's what guides you. It's what is your priority. So what the Bible says is when you believe, the old center is removed, tossed away, and a new center is given to you. New priorities, new value system. And then thirdly, you're given his spirit. The power now to carry out those new values and that new identity, you're now given the power to do those things. That happens when you and I believe, okay? So here's what happens though. That all, we're saved, that's awesome. But then like Ananias and Sapphira, in comes the enemy. And the enemy, here's what he does. The core of you and I have been changed. That's the big idea there. It's not what it was before. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's happened to you. The core of you has been changed. But the enemy comes and we still have an old nature and we still have a mind that needs to be renewed. So the enemy comes like he comes to Ananias and Sapphira and tries to capture us with what I call cheap thrills. Instead of, the deep things that you are now, he tries to entice us with a cheap thrill. So I'll give you my, maybe my best example. It's the one I do a lot of now. It's sexual sin, especially pornography with young men. So a young man will come to me and he'll confess and we start to walk through that. And it's getting younger and younger. It's, it's scary to me. It's very scary. Protect your kids. Protect your kids. So we'll start to walk through this thing. And I always at some point will ask, and I have done this with dozens of men. I always ask them this question. Okay, you've succumbed. Satan captured your heart. You consented. You looked. How do you feel when it's all done? Are you happy? I've never had one young man say, totally, man. So happy. I've had every single one of them say, no. I've had some of them say, I'm depressed. I hate myself. I hate that I keep doing it. I wanna commit suicide, one guy. I just wanna kill myself because I can't keep doing this. It's always that. Because here's what the enemy does. He takes our godly good desires of a young man saying, I want to be with a woman. 
And the godly part of that is I want to get married and give my life to her and she gives her life to me and we live together and we raise godly kids and it's beautiful and brilliant. I want that. What Satan does is he takes that deep godly desire and he says, you can have it easier, a cheap thrill. And then we succumb to that. Look out. It's what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. They had this generosity deep in them, right? And then Satan used that generosity, sell this property. Hey, now that you got the money, listen. You don't have to give it all. You give part of it. Oh yeah, I could be greedy, right? That's what the way Satan works. So how do, you, how do you battle that? Here's what I tell young men. I give them this sentence. And this is what I do with a lot of people, addiction, you name it. Here's the sentence I give to them. Believe your identity has changed for joy. It's called new covenant theology. Believe. I'm amazed at how many people are in church that have not believed in Jesus Christ. They're here because it's fun, I guess, because it's a thing to do, because it's a way to get involved in community, because it's the way to find a wife, way to find a husband, whatever it is. There's all kinds of other, other reasons than Jesus why people are in church. So now my number one question with people is, have you believed in Jesus? Because if you have not, you have not been given a new heart and been cleansed and been in God's spirit. So I start right there, have you believed, right? And sometimes that's all we get. No, I haven't. Well, you need to get saved, bro. That's your problem. Then the next one is your identity. The Bible over and over and over says something about what happens the moment you believe in Jesus, that you were in the kingdom of darkness, but now you're in the kingdom of light. You were a natural person, now you're a spiritual person. You were part of the citizenry of earth. Now you're a citizen of heaven. You were a sinner. Now you are a saint. There's just tons of verses. So we go over that. Don't you know who you are now? You are a child of King Jesus. You are a king or queen in training. When you understand your identity, you will know this. It's Romans 8.1. There's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You become something else. It's brilliant. So believe your identity has changed. I take them to Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Both of those texts say this as a believer. When you wake up in the morning, you have an option. You can put on your old filthy clothes, your old nature, or you can be clothed and robed in Jesus Christ. Like that's your choice. So I get up in the morning, do I wanna choose my stinky clothes from the pig pen or do I wanna put on the best robe in the world? I have that choice. That's where we partner with Jesus. Hey, today, Jesus, I wanna walk with you. I wanna talk with you. I wanna learn of you. I want to say over and over throughout my day, what would you do? That's really the way it is, right? So believe your identity has changed and then the last one to me is the most important for joy. So John Piper has this thing he calls Christian hedonism. It's like such a strange pairing of words, right? You don't pair those words very often. And it means this, as believers, we should be those that do what makes us most happy. That because your heart has changed, 
because you've been given God's spirit, that if you'll truly do what you really, 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 really want to, it will bring great happiness. But here's what the enemy does. The enemy takes you and me to the dollar store. You ever taken your kid to the dollar store? What do they want on every single aisle? One of those dollar toys. What do you know about those dollar toys? They're junk, but they're only a dollar. So what do you do? Fine, I'll buy it for you. So they play with the toy for 3.7 seconds. It breaks and then they're crying. Okay, that's exactly what Satan does. He takes us to the dollar store and look at this. Man, if you only had that, you'd be happy. Oh, if you only could do that, you'd be happy. And the moment we succumb to it, it breaks. So what John Piper says, and I agree with this, no, you don't do that. As a believer with the new heart and with God's spirit, you say, I'm not going for cheap thrills. I want deep joy. Jesus, what would bring me deep joy? Not a cheap dollar toy. A 450 motorcycle would bring me deep joy. That's what I want. I want something better. And you pursue what will truly make you happy in the long term. I have a Bible professor who repeated this so many times I could never, I, it's, it's embedded in my brain. He said this, here's the key. If a believer will stop the moment Satan tries to lob something in your heart, captivates you, verse three, if a believer will stop, pray, think, especially in community, and choose what will make him most happy, you will mostly do what's right because you've been given a new heart and God's spirit. And what Satan wants to do is make it really fast, cheap thrill, cheap thrill, cheap thrill. Dollar store, dollar store, dollar store. As a believer, so say, wait, 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 wait. Let me call a friend. Hey, should I do this? No, okay, thank you. In community, that will not bring you great joy. And I go over, like all of them, addiction. You name, they're all Satan's way of bringing us to the dollar store cheap thrill, and we forfeit the deep joy that God has for us. Stop, pray, think, especially in community, call a friend, and then do what you know will bring you lasting joy. That's how we get rid of the enemy, right? Ananias and Sapphira did not do that. We're supposed to do that. Don't let, this, don't let chapter five happen to your honeymoon, all right? So the next question, question two, why is God so harsh here? Here's a guy who sells a house and he's given a massive chunk of it to the church, right? That's pretty cool that most churches would be like, hey, that's awesome. Now he does get together with his wife. It's not a mistake. It's not forgetting. It's none of those things. It is a beforehand, we are planning on doing this. We're planning on deceiving Peter. And they do that. They come. Peter says, what are you doing? He lies and drops dead. It's the last time anyone lies to the apostle Peter. If you're gonna lie to somebody, not that dude. We saw what happened there. Tell the truth, right? Real short counseling sessions with him. Imagine if that was in church today. Imagine if this same, if Acts 5 still happened in church today, right? Yeah, dude, I landed the fish. It was about 25 pounds. Okay, it was 12 pounds, sorry. How are you doing today? Excellent. <laughs> okay, I'm doing terrible. This would be really, really crazy. We have a very small church. In fact, I don't think we'd have a church. My wife would be the only one. <laughs> I 
So God here responds super harsh, and here's why I think. It's a reminder that God hates sin, that he is super serious when it comes to sin, that God loves his creation. Chapter one, Genesis, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And sin hurts his creation. And so God hates how sin and how the enemy is wrecking his good earth, and he hates it. And what you see throughout the Bible is there's example after example of when God begins a new work, a new creative work, he brings the wood. So look at Exodus 32 and 33. God's bringing down the law, which is gonna dominate 1,400 years of the Bible. When the law is coming down, what are the people doing below? Golden calf, dancing nakedly. God brings the wood really harshly there. Then, skip forward, tabernacle's going. The way to worship Yahweh is installed. And there's these two dudes, Nadab and Abihu, who in Numbers 11, bring strange fire into the tabernacle. And God brings the wood. That's not how worship of me is gonna take place. Right? Promised land, finally. 400 plus year dream given to Abraham. Finally, it's coming to pass. Awesome. They're gonna head in to the promised land. And then what happens with Achan? He disobeys God and the wood comes down, right? Then you come to Acts 5. God's your new work, birthing the church. Ananias and Sapphira, sin, the wood comes down. Now those texts are actually the exceptions. I named them all. The reason why they stand out is because normally God responds to sinners in mercy and in grace. But it seems like every once in a while, God responds differently, brings the wood. We'll talk more on Wednesday about Acts chapter five. And they stand out because they are so like, wow, what happened? Here's what happened. God hates sin. I think in America, we need Acts chapter five. Because I'm not sure in America, as believers, we hate sin anymore. Like, it seems like there's these competing, competing ideas about what it means to follow Jesus. Like, well, obedience is optional, right? I prayed a prayer 20 years ago. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I'm good. Really? Even though your life looks nothing like Jesus, you're good? Are you sure? Or... The Genesis 3 lie. Did God really say that? Does the Bible really say that? Is that really a sin? And we know that's not a sin anymore. That used to be a sin, but it's not a sin now. Oh, okay. Or God won't judge you. God's a God of love. He would never judge. Hmm, what about Acts 5? Hmm, right? There seems to be in America these competing thoughts about God and what he does and what he doesn't do. And I think because we have, as a church, broadly moved very much towards grace, which is a great thing. Grace can get out of balance. So I've had young men say this to me. It's all grace, bro. It's all grace. 
we're dealing with sin. It's all grace, man, I'm forgiven. And they'll quote for me Romans chapter five, verse 20. Favorite verse for the sinner. Man, that's a good one. Because it says there, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Come on, Matt, look at that. My job is to sin, God's job is to forgive. Symbiotic relationship, brilliant and beautiful. I always ask them, did you keep reading? Because just a couple verses after that, Paul then says, so should we continue sinning? And then he says, chapter six, verse two, God forbid. In the Greek, it's literally H-E double hockey stick, no. It's very strong. In the rest of chapter six, it's all about new covenant Christianity. That's what it's all about. It's, hey, look it. Look what happened to you. The old you has died. You put on Jesus Christ. You're resurrected. You're righteous now. Yield your members to righteousness, not to unrighteousness. That's the whole rest of the chapter. So I think as Americans, maybe more than any other group, we actually need chapter five. Because we're supposed to hate sin too. It's full, full in the Bible. Romans 12, verse nine. Cling to what is good, hate evil. Psalm 45, seven. Hate wickedness. Psalm 97, 10. Those that love Yahweh hate wickedness. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate sin. Amos 5, 10. Hate evil. Hebrews 1 verse 9, speaking of Jesus, he loved righteousness and hated wickedness and he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. He got deep joy because he chose new covenant theology. I'm not going for that cheap thrill. I want deep abiding joy. I think as believers, we gotta get really serious about sin. We need to hate it. James chapter four, verses eight and nine says this. It says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, repent from sin. And then verse nine says this, weep, howl, mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Is that how we respond to sin? When we hear about sin or we see sin on TV, are we like howling and weeping and mourning? Probably not. I think we're laughing. I think the entertainment world has taken the things that Christians should be weeping and howling and mourning over and they've made it into comedy, right? What's a romantic comedy all about? Fornication and adultery. Ha ha, that's funny. The, the, The whole genre of, I just call them drunk comedies, right? The drunk people doing crazy things and we're, we're laughing at drunk people. But maybe we should be weeping and howling and mourning because it's not funny. My advantage as a pastor is I get to sit in rooms with a family where there's been unfaithfulness. And I get to see the brokenness and the tears and the weeping and the howling and the mourning. And it protects me. I'm not going there. Wow, that hurts. I believe this when your heart is broken over sin, it becomes a shield so you don't do it again. 
and then in the entertainment industry is geared to turn it around, laugh at it, because if you laugh at it, it doesn't seem so bad. Fornication, ha 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 ha. Adultery, ha 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 ha. Oh, well, you know, they laugh at it. Why don't I just try it? Be all so careful. We should be those that take James chapter four very seriously. I'm not laughing at that stuff. I don't laugh at addiction because I had a dad who died from alcoholism, an older brother who's dead from addiction. Not funny, not funny. And maybe we need to be more connected to those kinds of things so we see it for what it is. So people wanna dabble in drugs. You know what? Go to the gospel rescue mission and talk to some people down there who've gone through addiction and ask them, hey, was that funny? Was living under a bridge funny? Was stealing from your family funny? My guess is they'll say no. Or maybe go to the pregnancy care center and walk with somebody through that. Because it's not fun anymore. You, you do exactly what James says. Oh, my heart's broken. My heart's broken. See, I think we need Acts 5. We need to hate sin too, right? But I think there's a second reason. And it's this. Ananias and Sapphira were doing something. They were acting more righteous, more holy than they were, Right? They saw Barnabas, sold his stuff, gave it away. They saw the reaction of the church was like, oh, Barnabas, that's so awesome. So what they wanted, they wanted the same reaction without a similar action. What do we call that? Hypocrisy, excellent. When Jesus was on earth, he had a beef with one group of people called the Pharisees, whom he referred to as hypocrites. In fact, in Matthew 23, he says this, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but you're dead inside. You're fakes. You're faking it. It'd be like today, someone who washes and waxes his car, but never changes the oil. What's he gonna have? Merlin lawn art. Someone who's diagnosed with cancer doesn't go get treatment or chemo, instead just goes buys a, buys a new wardrobe. Well, I don't want anybody to notice. I don't want my hair to fall out. Oh, silly. It doesn't make sense. It's hypocrisy. And here's, here's what I think. I think God said, I will not allow hypocrisy into the church. We're not gonna go back to the Pharisee system where it was all about how good are you at keeping the checklist? Doesn't matter where your heart is. Doesn't matter where your head is. Just matters how good you are at keeping the checklist. Do you wear the right clothes? Do you speak the right language? Do you walk the right way? Do you talk the right way? Good, even though you hate it on the inside. We're not going back to that system. We're not going back to a club. It's all about how good you are at the membership dues. We're not going back to that. I, Jesus, I did not send my son to die on a cross so that you guys could become a group of hypocrites. We're not doing it. I think that's why God is so serious. If there's one thing that will ruin church, what God destined it to be, it's hypocrisy. What the church had been at this point is open, honest, pure, loving, awesome. And all that would be destroyed by this one thing called hypocrisy.
We're not doing that. But it's so powerful, isn't it? Isn't hypocrisy so powerful? It's unbelievable to me. It's still alive and well in church. It's still alive and well in all of us. So if you have a couple over for dinner for the first time, do you really clean up your house? You just make sure it just looks just right, right? You gotta chain the kids up in the room because they'll ruin it. Nah, you're changing your room. I want the house to look great. Now, is that how your house normally looks all the time? No way. You want people to believe you live in a museum. Look at how perfect it is, right? That's hypocrisy. Good hypocrisy, I'm not saying it's bad, but we all have this thing. We want people to believe something better about us than we actually are. The Bible calls it men-pleasing. Paul says, if I want to be a man-pleaser, I can't serve God. He literally puts it like that in Galatians 1.10. That's how far apart they are. Wow. So how do you deal with something like hypocrisy? Notice really quick, I'll be fast. Verse five says, great fear came upon all that were there. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear. God brings the wood down, people see it, and they're afraid. And it changes the church. Here's how I explain this, what it means to fear God. Let's imagine for a second, you are driving with your family and you're having a family argument. I know none of you do that. Pretend for a moment. And you are trying to make your point. And it is the most important point in the universe. My family needs to get this point. So you're right in the middle of it. It is as heated as possible when all of a sudden out pulls in front of you a semi. What do you do in that moment? Keep making your point. You need to do the dishes more often. I do the dishes too often. You need to clean. Do you keep doing that? No, you slam on the brakes and scream because something greater just got in front of you. And whatever your point was or whatever your priority was in the moment before, it's all been changed because something greater got your attention. That's the fear of God. Something greater grabbed their attention. Oh my goodness, why are we worried about this? Oh my goodness, something just got my attention. That's the fear of the Lord, that he is greater and bigger and better and all those things. And that's supposed to grab the framework of the believer. And the byproduct of the fear of God is supposed to be this, awe. And here's what I mean, that he who's greater, the semi, if you would, greater, more powerful, holds the universe in his hand. He has spoken the universe into existence with the word that that being loves me. Is that revolutionary? It should be. So I have people ask me this from time to time. Matt, you seem confident in what you do. What's your secret? My answer is always the same. Two things happened to me in life that gave me great confidence. Number one, when I finally realized why God loves me. And number two, 18 years ago, when a then five foot nine blonde 
said yes to me. Anyone can have number one. Nobody gets number two. Mine. When it finally sunk into my heart that God loves me because of Jesus. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that love is secure. They don't have to earn that anymore. I don't have to worry about that anymore. That the only opinion ultimately that's ever going to matter is securely in my favor. When I finally got that, I'm like, then why do I care what people think of me? Why do I try to please people? Why do I need to be a hypocrite? The only opinion that really matters loves me and is favorable towards me. So I don't care about having a big Facebook page or Instagram, or how many likes I get, or how many dislikes I get. I don't care about that. I don't care what car I drive. For a long time, I worked as an engineer. It was not a money issue. I drove a truck somebody gave me. So just know that. It was a gift. It was a 1976 two-wheel drive, four-door GMC, baby blue with a lot of rust and dents. And my wife said this about that truck. She said, it is the ugliest car in Josephine County. We live here. That means something because there's some ugly vehicles here. It was the ugliest, right? I would still be driving that thing. But one day it blew up. It was either an answer to my wife's prayers or that she let out all the oil the night before. One of those two. I just don't care. I'll drive a nice car. Hey, that'd be awesome. I'll drive a junk. It doesn't matter because my value is not centered on what people think about what I drive or the cars I have or, or any of the, that, that doesn't matter because the king of the universe loves me, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know how radical that is? It sets you free. That's what Paul was saying. I'm not seeking to please men. Their opinion can be good or bad for me. I can't control that. The one opinion that matters, I'm clinging to that one. I'm clinging to that one. That cures hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, sadly, is alive and well in church. Here's the test I give people. If yesterday you were riding your motorcycle and you broke your leg, where would you go? Not a trick question. The hospital. Because the hospital is the place for people with broken legs. If yesterday you blow it, literally, and you get a dewy, if you don't know what a dewy is, I love you. <laughs> and you end up in the paper Saturday, would you be in church on Sunday? No, because for some reason, church is not the place for broken people. Somehow hypocrisy has sunk into really what we think about church and church is no longer a place where it's okay to not be okay. And this is the place I find help. But Matt, I've been to church before and then I blew it. Oh, oh, so if you've been to the hospital before, you can't go back again? Or you have all these ridiculous things ahead. I'm like, what are you talking about? The proverb says a righteous man will fall down seven times. Then he'll get back up. See, where would be the place? where people come because they're broken and they come and we introduce them to the great physician who heals them. And we know that this might take one or two or nine or seven times. It might take that, but Galatians 6.1 says we walk with them through that. 
trusting that God will change their heart and give them his spirit and they'll begin to walk stronger and stronger and stronger. And if they fall, we'll be there. That's what the church is supposed to be. When the church is that, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So one of the reasons why we come to the table every single Sunday indoor is because we're reminded of the cure to hypocrisy. It's the good news. That the one opinion that actually matters about you is secure. That you get to eat and drink acceptance. You get to eat and drink of great love. You get to eat and drink of the faithfulness of God for you. That's how we do communion. And so Jesus, this day, I pray that you would forgive me of my tendency to want people to think I'm something that I am not. That I'm smarter than I am. More scholarly, more educated. Know the Bible better than I do. Forgive me for those tendencies. Forgive us, Lord, as a community. of not presenting an attitude where broken people are welcomed and walked with and loved on. May Edgewater be known as a place where broken people go and they meet Jesus, our great physician. I pray that as we come to the table this day, Lord, as we eat and as we drink of you, I pray that we would be reminded of your love. That we'd also be strengthened in our resolve to hate sin. Say no to the temptations, the satanic lobbying to captivate our hearts. We'd say no to that because we choose deep joy. So strengthen your body and send us out as an army grants pass. And I ask this in your name. Amen.